Welcome back to the Sports Medicine North Pod. I'm Anthony Yu. I'm excited to introduce this week's guest, sports journalist, former beat writer for the New England Patriots, and budding physical therapist, Kevin Duffy. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Anthony. Appreciate you having me on. I'm a, a big fan of the show. Um, discovered it on a, a five-hour drive up to Maine a couple months ago, and I've been hooked ever since. So I think you got you and and Dr. Drew Burleson are doing an excellent job. So I, I appreciate you reaching out and having me on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. So yeah, for the audience, Kevin reached out to us because he's making a transition in his career from journalism to physical therapy, and he took an interest in the show. Thank you very much. Uh, and reached out to us, and I said, wow, this is an awesome story, and you've covered some really big sports stories over the last decade that I want to hear about, and uh, you were kind enough to come on the show. So thanks very much. You grew up in New Milford, which is just outside of Danbury, Connecticut. I looked it up a little bit. That's an area with a lot of rich uh, U.S. history. It was settled in 1685, was this military depot during the Revolutionary War. I'm from California, which means I'm just a complete snob and nothing outside of the state exists to me. So what, what was that like growing up in uh, New Milford, the Danbury area? It was pretty good. I uh, <laughs> I love my, my hometown. Everyone, actually, I... You know, I've been in Boston since 2014, and I still get made fun of um, <laughs> by my wife and by my friends for loving Connecticut. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, a lot of people always say, like, no one likes Connecticut. Like, um, but I, but I'm very proud of being from uh, the New Milford, Danbury area. So yeah, it was, it was great. I, I like growing up there, and still best friends with all my buddies I grew up with and played high school basketball with. Yeah. So were sports a big part of your life growing up? Yep. Um, played basketball pretty much my whole life. Um, it's all I really cared about until I was in my early 20s, probably. I uh -huh. played uh, every day when I was a kid and played high school basketball. I ran track in high school also. So I, I played football when I was younger, but I didn't play in high school because I was a little too small in high school. Yeah. But yeah, I've always, <laughs> um, sports were always a very important part of my life. Yeah, sure. When did you start getting interested in journalism? So I, well, I declared um, a journalism major right at, the, I went to UConn and at going in, I declared journalism, but I wasn't, I was kind of like lukewarm on it. Um, I had always, I was into, I, I really liked to write when I was a kid. I wrote, I, when I was in like fourth grade, I would write a lot of stories that I would just make up and I would read them to the class and stuff. Yeah. And I kind of got away from that when I was in high school because I was just so hyper-focused on sports and it was really the only thing I cared about. But going into college at, at UConn, I knew, you know, sports probably were going to end for me because I was not good enough to play for UConn, although I did, I tried out as a walk-on and didn't make it. Um, so I, I joined the student newspaper at UConn when I was a sophomore, and I really fell in love with journalism at that point. I My first beat I was assigned was the UConn volleyball team, mm -hmm. and I just liked interviewing the players and like learning about their background stories and things like that. So I, I really, I caught on at that point and I was just kind of hooked and um, really developed a passion for it about my sophomore year in college. Were you aiming towards sports journalism at that point specifically? Yes, I, I was aiming towards sports. I was, I kind of branched out a little. I, I enjoyed doing some writing that wasn't necessarily sports focused. Like, I mean, some later in my life, like, some things that sports led me to that really had little to do with sports. But at that point in college, I, all I wanted to do was cover sports. That's all I, that's really all I envisioned uh, myself doing. Yeah. So you graduated UConn in 2009, you're telling me, and then your first job out of college was actually for your hometown paper, the Danbury new times covering the local sports in the area. What was that like being the, the hometown reporter working for the hometown paper? <laughs> it was, it was interesting and it was pretty lucky because it's just a, it's a very tough industry and it really, it's a, it's a lot of luck that goes into it. Um, like I was pretty much prepared to move to wherever to get a job working for a newspaper. I would have moved to Arkansas. I would have moved I, and I was applying to a bunch of different places and it just so happened that a, a friend of mine, his dad found out about opening at the Danbury news times and kind of got me in there and I sent my resume and my stuff and ended up hiring me. So that worked out great because I could live at home for a couple of years and, you know, get my feet wet in journalism. And I probably wrote some things that weren't so great, but I also had, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it gave you a lot of creative freedom. And we ended up hiring one of my best friends from college too. So I ended up working with one of my best friends for a couple of years there. 
and um, it, it ended up being a really great experience. But it was very, very lucky because, you know, there's there are just not a lot of jobs available in sports journalism. So if, if that job hadn't popped up and I was faced with the decision of, do you want to really move to Arkansas to cover high school sports in Arkansas? Then I, I don't know if I would have done it. So it's just like the dominoes kind of fell. It, things fell uh, very, very well for me for, for uh, that, that job to open up. Yeah. And I mean, that's a cool way to cut your teeth. Uh, I definitely think back on our first podcast, they're definitely what I would call cringeworthy <laughs> compared sure. to the fine product I'm putting out there now. Um, so then uh, 2011, you then went back to UConn and took over uh, the beat for the basketball team, uh, working for the Hearst Connecticut Media Group, which publishes kind of a conglomerate, right? That publishes a number of different Connecticut newspapers. Yep. Um, what was that like returning to your alma mater now as the you know professional sports journalist? That was that was cool. Looking back, that was probably my that was probably the highlight of my sports journalism career, just being able to cover UConn. Um, I covered the last season of Jim Calhoun as coach, and mm-hmm. he, he was really a, I mean, a legend in Connecticut, also a really fascinating guy. Um, I, I can't say I only covered him for one season, so I didn't get to know him super well, but um, he was generous with his time. I got to sit down with him and talk with him, uh, you know, an hour, sit down interviews and kind of things. Looking back, that's just like so fortunate that he would grant me that kind of access. Sure. Um, and then, I covered Kevin Ollie's first two years, the second of which they won the national championship with Shabazz Napier. So to, to do that, it had like, you know, you are impartial. You try to be objective as a sports journalist, but I had an emotional connection to what I was covering. So that really made it, that made it, it was just like such a wild ride. It just, it felt so cool looking back uh, to be able to do that. So um, I would say of all the things I've covered, just, that I got to cover my alma mater winning a national championship. That was about as cool as it gets. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that year they were like the seven seed and, um, you know, we just finished this March madness and, uh, my UCLA Bruins, they, they put on a good show. Uh, I, I can only imagine what that was like for you seeing your team, get get to the final four and then advance the championship game and, and then actually win um, that, that must have been very exciting yeah it just reached the point where and it probably wasn't even as crazy as the Kemba Walker run in 2011 where they won five games five days in the Big East and they won the national championship um, but as a seven seed I mean they had Shabazz Napier was probably the best player in the country that year mm-hmm. and I've always felt in the tournament when your best player is a guard you just you have a good chance to go far because he can dictate the game. He always has the ball in his hands, and that's what happened in the NCAA tournament. But I mean, looking back, like they, I don't know, like nationally, people don't probably think about UConn's 2014 championship very much, but they probably should have lost in the first round of St. Joseph's. They took it took a three point play at the end of regulation by a freshman big man who made a made a pretty hard layup, got fouled, and made the free throw. And the guy was like a 55 percent free throw shooter if he doesn't make that shot, they're out in the first round and the history of UConn basketball is a lot different. So it, that, that's just kind of the team that they were, they were not a dominant team, but they, they found a way early and then they got very hot late. And um, when they went to that championship game against Kentucky, I just, I knew they were going to win just, they had already gone through so many tough teams and I just felt like Kentucky was, it was a bunch of freshmen against Shabazz and Boatwright and a team that already had championship experience and, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny because when people tweet like, oh, the, the, the best and worst champions of, of the last 25 years, those UConn teams are always at the bottom. They don't get a lot of respect, but <laughs> they won. I mean, they went through a very hard road to win, too. So that that was a man. It, it really was just crazy to be able to chronicle that season and and to be there uh, front row and watching some of those games. Did you storm the court? When I, <laughs> I did not storm the court. Actually, I had, I had terrible seats for the final four. I was like, I was like all the way back in like the auxiliary row. I could barely see the game. Which had, that's kind of a regret. I didn't, I didn't get like a, a good like courtside spot for the, final, for the national title game. But um, other than you that, like wave the press pass around, get to the floor, and then just yeah, well, they, <laughs> just they tackle Shabazz. They had all the. Uh, 
And all the national outlets had the first couple of, right. first couple of rows, so they bumped like they bumped me for like the San Antonio paper, and I'm just like, this guy doesn't cover any of these teams. Yeah. Like, come on. But anyway, it was that was great. So you know that the, Kevin Ollie's tenure, as we know now, it, it didn't end with such a happy ending. Uh, he was fired in 2018 following a NC2A investigation into uh, multiple violations, and this is not you know bad UConn. This is not unique to UConn. This you know. Uh, Violations for a number of reasons, typically recruiting, have been going on since the A's have been talking about a new stadium, which is like forever. You know, what do you make of this having covered high level NC2A men's basketball, the the rule bending, flat out rule breaking across the NC2A? Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of the, like the violations that Ali got popped for, it was, you know, he put a recruit on the phone with Ray Allen. I mean, there, there are just a lot of things that the NCAA has outlawed that just seem like kind of dumb. Like it's just really, sure. is it really that big of a deal that, yeah. that a recruit talked to Ray Allen? I mean, I don't necessarily think so, but, and, and that's, as you said, it's not just at UConn. There's, I mean, college sports have been trying to figure out exactly what they are for 30 years longer than that. And I don't sure. think they, they still haven't really figured that out yet. They're still maintaining that the amateur status and, you know, there's, there's more of kind of a, an uproar about each year about players not benefiting enough. Um, so that it's the sport in general has a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I think at the heart of this issue is what is fair compensation for these college athletes who generate a lot of income for the university uh, and particularly for basketball, let's say where you have a blue chip athlete who's probably only going to be at school for a season, you know, that old argument that, well, in exchange, they're getting a free education. That that certainly doesn't apply to something like that. So, yeah, I mean, like, where do you think the NC2A goes from here? You know, they have this new G League option for kind of these kids who otherwise would have been one and done. Do you think the NC2A adapts uh, or, or where do you think I they think go? They they have to make some changes. They can't keep sticking with the the outdated um, way that, of doing things that, They've been using for the past 50 years. It's just, it's just different. They can't. They have to make changes. I think the, cha- the the first change they should make clearly, the players should be able to benefit or to to receive compensation for signing autographs and making public appearances, things of that nature. I mean, most of the players playing in college, the peak of their fame or their their brand will be when they're playing college, so that they they have an opportunity to to take advantage of their you know their their local fame or whatever, right. and they don't receive any compensation from the university. So I think it's kind of ridiculous to not allow them to benefit from signing a couple autographs. Sure. And secondly, the, the second thing is tougher because, you know, you get into, all right, well, if you're going to pay athletes, how, how is that going to work? What's the system for that? Are you, is the quarterback going to make the same as the left guard? Sure. Who's going to make the same as a scholarship rower or a cross country runner? Right. You get into, should the revenue generating sports, the ones who are really carrying the entire athletic department, do, should they be getting higher salaries than the other sports? So that's pretty messy, and I don't really have a great answer for that. What I think the best solution is is to allow all scholarship Division One athletes to have lifetime scholarships. And there are a couple of colleges that do this already. University of Maryland, I think, was the first to do it a couple of years ago. So it, I think it's it's very difficult for college athletes to balance their sport and their education. And a lot of times really when you're dealing with a place like UConn where I went, if you are good enough to play basketball or even play football at UConn, you might have some kind of chance of playing professionally. So you might want to put your eggs in in that basket as opposed to playing as opposed to really like pouring everything into education and doing internships in the summer and doing the kind of things that will give you an advantage um, in the job market outside of sports. So if you do that and you fall short of the pros, which is what happens with, with a lot of people, then you're kind of left in no man's land because, you, you know, you, it's great. You got to play college sports and you went to college for free, but you weren't able to maximize the degree and the opportunity in college. So I think that they should be able to return to, to finish their degrees if they haven't completed it or if you want to pursue graduate studies um, when you determine that, you know what, I'm... I'm not going to have a, a pro career or maybe I played overseas for two years, but I'm done. And now I want to go back and study something that I didn't really have the time to commit to. Yeah. I think 
doing lifetime scholarships is kind of a, a good compromise um, as opposed to just like paying out salaries. Cause I, I just don't know how that would exactly work to, you know, decide who gets what. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great idea. Um, so from there you went on to cover the new England Patriots uh, initially for mass live. That was 2014 to 2018. And then for the Boston Herald, 2018, 2019, and they won three Super Bowls during that time, 2014, 16, and 18. And so this is the most general of general questions, but what was it like covering the Patriots? Crazy. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it really is a, it's a crazy organization in many ways. I mean, they're, you know, Belichick is probably the best professional coach, I think, in maybe in the history of sports. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I don't know if there's anyone, a modern coach that I would say is better than him. And Brady obviously is, I mean, look what he just did this year. So just covering yeah. the two of them, <laughs> that that's crazy itself. And then you add on to that, just all the, the other parts of covering the Patriots, whether it be Deflategate or Aaron Hernandez, or they're just, they always seem to find themselves at the center of whatever the biggest controversy in the NFL is. Um, but they, they also at the same, and many times like they're somewhat responsible for generating that controversy, but at the same time, the team itself is very focused and really doesn't get steered off path by whatever, and whatever chaotic situation they're thrown into. Um, so it was crazy in that sense. And it's also just, I mean, it, it is a very intense, uh, media market. There are there are many beat writers. It's extremely competitive. It's a really talented group of beat writers too. So just from a professional standpoint, trying to stand out and trying to do work that other people aren't doing was an incredible challenge. And um, it was also a lot of fun. Like I'm really good friends with a lot of the guys that, that cover the team. So it, that, that part of it was great too, but it was, I mean, that they are, I, I would say they're a one of a kind franchise to cover. Yeah, I mean, is that in terms of that competition from the journalism side? Is is that in terms of like getting interviews or um, you know uh, uncovering you know new leads or stories or yeah. sort of all of the above? All, all, all of the above, yeah. Because it's how do you make yourself a person that people want to go to sure. to read about the Patriots when there are fifteen people doing it and yeah. when when Adam Schefter is really doing most of the breaking news. So right. it's, <laughs> so it's yeah. a, it's a big challenge. I mean, it, there were, there's a lot of times where we're all writing the same kind of thing, which mm -hmm. is not what you want to be doing, but um, was unavoidable at times. So I think the the challenge for me in the five years I did it was always to try to do something different that was, but at the same time, it wasn't just different for the sake of being different. It was also interesting, which is a hard balance to find. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, there's no doubt it was, it was, um, I'm really happy I did it and I have a lot of great memories from doing it, but it, it was definitely a very challenging beat to be on. And I imagine it's pretty grueling because you know, every year is going to end in a deep playoff run. It's not like they're playing 16 and you get the rest of the season or you have the full off season, you know, they're, they're going right. into late December, January every every year um, oh yeah yeah as you said i think three of the or was it four of the five years that i covered them they went to the super bowl i think there was only one year where they didn't yeah the only year they didn't go to the super bowl when i covered them was 2015 they lost in the afc championship in denver so every year they came around when it's like week 17 and the browns just lost and they finished six and ten i'm always like wow that's pretty crazy. Their beat writers are just done. Like they have nothing else to do. That's right. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, not, not the not the case with us. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You guys are just getting started at that point. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yep. Uh, you, you mentioned Aaron Hernandez, so that is obviously one of the more notorious chapters in in Patriots lore. You covered Aaron Hernandez. You covered his trial in 2015. What was that like? The, the 2015 trial was probably the most dramatic like moment I've witnessed in journalism. And um, I mean, it just doesn't compare to a, a game, even like the dramatic rules they played it. There's just no comparison. Cause you're, you're in the courtroom in, in Fall River, Massachusetts. And it's, it's a pretty small courtroom. It's packed. There were maybe, you know, 10 or 15 journalists there writing about the events of the day. And we were, I mean, I, I didn't cover the entire trial, but I covered 
I covered probably about half of the proceedings. And then I was at the courtroom every day as, as the jury was deliberating. And they took, I think they took like seven or eight days to deliberate. Mm -hmm. So we would just go and you just wait and hang out and I don't know. And the, hopefully they would call you in. And, and I was just outside the courtroom one day and everyone started rushing in and they said that the verdict is in. So you get in there and it's just like, you know, my heart was like pounding and yeah. I, I didn't have really much at stake personally. I was just so, it was just witnessing what was going to happen. And, you know, I, I, I covered it. I paid close attention. I knew the evidence. It seemed like, it seemed like he probably was going to be guilty, but you never know. And I thought his defense did a really good job and there was a chance. So, uh, yeah, I'll never forget watching. I was sitting in the row right behind, um, his mom and his girlfriend, Shiana Jenkins. And I was just kind of watching them as, as, uh, Hernandez was brought in and, and they read the verdict and Hernandez was standing up. And when they said he was guilty, he just kind of like sunk back in, into his seat and just looked so defeated. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the most dramatic moment I've been, I've ever had in journalism. And I also covered his 2017 trial too, which was lower stakes because he was already convicted for life without parole, but you know, the families of the victims were, were there every day and they, they really wanted uh, justice. And Hernandez actually was, he was found not guilty in that instance. And that was, you know, that was an interesting trial to cover too, to just watch him because you were watching a, a man who knew that he was never going to leave prison. And this was, he was in jail for life without parole. And, and these opportunities in the courtroom he got to put on a suit he got to buddy around with his lawyers this was really his only like real life thing going on and then right. you know after that trial was over he would have really nothing and um so it was it was pretty and then then you find out i don't know five or six days afterward that he had committed suicide in in prison which was just I just felt sad for the whole situation, but, um, to, to, to watch, to just watch his actions and watch him closely throughout both trials was really, really, uh, fascinating and, um, an experience I'll never forget. Prior to his incarceration, had, had you interacted him with all, uh, interacted with him at all? No, I hadn't. I didn't, I, I didn't cover him when he played for the Patriots, but I had, you know, like I had covered, you know, he was from Connecticut. He was a high school football legend mm -hmm. in Connecticut. So right. he had an, an originally committed to UConn. Yep. And um, I actually remember being at Gamble Pavilion one day at a basketball game, and he was visiting the campus with uh, the football coach, and he was, like, standing right in, in front of me at Gamble. And I knew who he was just because he was, like, the number one recruit in the country. And his brother played for UConn, too. And, mm -hmm. I mean, his, I, his brother was in the same class as I was 09 at UConn, and I – covered the UConn football team when I was a senior. So I, I mean, I wouldn't say I knew his brother, but I interacted with his brother a little bit, but never Aaron. So I, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any, a lot of the other beat writers had been there when he was a player. So I didn't have that kind of experience, mm -hmm. but um, you know, I wrote about him a little bit in Connecticut too, when I was there just because he was such a, he's probably the most dominant high school athlete to ever come out of the state of Connecticut. So you know, the whole story was just, absolutely crazy yeah and you know you gave me a good excuse to watch the now infamous netflix documentary um you know hindsight is 2020 in all of these cases especially when you're, you're dealing with a, a high profile celebrity or or athlete but one of the things the documentary shows in not such a flattering light is some of the community rallying around him after he's been arrested and you know people on instagram re recreating his handcuffs under the t-shirt pose as he was let out of his mansion when he was first arrested. Uh, they actually have a, a, a coined term for that. It's called Hernandezing. You know, after it's all said and done, being from that area, covering that area, you know, what was the impact on the community like when it became apparent that this was real, that, that he had committed uh, this atrocity? In the, in the Boston area or Connecticut, you mean? Uh, I, the, the Boston area, yeah. For, okay. I guess more for sort of like the New England um, fan base, um, uh, many of whom were sure. rap rapidly behind him. Right. Yep. So at that point, I was actually working and I was covering UConn still. I was working in Connecticut 
um, when he was initially arrested. Mm. So I, I don't know exactly how it was, but I will say that, I mean, the Patriots fans and the, certainly the Patriots, like they move on, like that never happened. Like that was mm-hmm. just not Aaron Hernandez was not part of the history. Like we don't know who that person was. That's kind of, it's, I know that might sound crazy to say, but I don't know if there was like a, a big, I'm sure there was a, a huge shock when it happened, but they, the, the fan base is pretty rabid about what happens between the lines. Sure. I don't. Um, so I think when football season rolled around, they were, they're not, they were just ready to move on from the Aaron Hernandez saga and hope the Patriots go 13 and three and right. the, <laughs> exactly. the AFC title again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, I mean, it's um, a, a crazy story. It's a very sad story for really all parties. Um, and yeah, I could understand that everybody's just ready to turn the page on it because some things you just can't make sense of. And this is kind of one of those things. Uh, that's not a natural segue, but we're going to talk about this transition point in your life. And so you are leaving journalism and going to physical therapy school. Yep. Uh, what's the deal? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Um, I don't know. It's, I, I really just, I had a, I really had a great time. Um, I loved that I was able to, to do that for 10 years out of college, but I just, for whatever reason, I just, I, I didn't feel quite as passionate about the job as I once did, um, journalism that is. And I, I started trying to think about what else I could do. I, you know, you reach, I was in my, you know, just turned probably 30 in my early thirties. And I was thinking what I have to work, I'm going to work for 35 more years. What, what am I going to do? Do yeah. I want to, I just, I didn't see myself doing what I was doing for the next 30 years. So um, I tried to think about what I, what would be a good fit for me. And I thought transitioning to something in, in healthcare would be a good fit for my personality and for kind of my priority is what I wanted to do. And um, PT was something I always had a real interest in. Uh, I had a a lot of experience with it myself. Unfortunately, I had three knee surgeries, two ACLs. um, So I was pretty familiar with outpatient ortho PTs. And sure. I, uh, I I also like, I like the environment, the the way that PTs are, they have like such a, a nice friendly relationship with their, with their patients. And when I had to go to rehab, it was something I like looked forward to doing. It was like a kind of a fun part of a uh, fun way to start the day. And I also really always admired PTs and certainly doctors and people who just had just like expert level knowledge about the human body and, and human movement and knowing every single bone and ligament and everything. I, that, that was just like cool to me. So I, I thought that it would be cool for me to, to try to acquire that knowledge myself and, and put it to good use. So I was, when I decided that, yeah, you know what, I think I'm going to do this. I was pretty excited by it. And it's, it was a long journey because I had zero science background. I was a journalism major in college. Uh-huh. So I basically spent the past year and a half. Um, I, I left the Patriots or I left the Boston Herald in um, September, 2019 and started taking some prereq classes and I was working a different, been working a different job for the past year and a half, different writing editing job outside of sports, which has been interesting itself. Um, and taking all these science classes, taking chem, taking physics, taking anatomy. And um, it's, it's been a challenge, but it's been pretty interesting. And I'm excited. I'm starting PT school full time in June. So I'm excited to just like get going and get moving to the next phase of this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, going back to something you said, there's something about turning 30 at least for men, uh, having, you know, as somebody who has crossed that milestone myself, there's something about turning 30 that makes you very reflective and introspective about where you are and how you got to where you are in life. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> I don't know. I've got a sample size of two here, right. um, but, <laughs> but I, I understand what you mean. I, I, I went through a, a similar uh, period of self-reflection right around the age of 30. Uh, you know, you mentioned your tears, the, the tears in your knees. So you had uh, ACL tear, left knee, 2019, also meniscus. And these were all basketball related uh, from, from what I recall. And then all your right knee was 2014. 
Yeah. And then your right knee actually has gone on to develop something we call post-traumatic arthritis, right? You actually had a, uh, another exploratory surgery kind of to, to evaluate that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, 2009 was my first, my left knee, which was interesting. Both basketball, the mech, the way I did each injury was different though. So I've always tried to figure out exactly what happened. My left knee is totally fine. And actually I came, maybe I, I did rehab, I think a little bit better with the left knee, but I was also 22 years old, so I was in like good shape and I was, yeah. but I came back from that and I was like, I was, I think I was like more athletic than I was before I tore it just because the, the rehab was, was so focused on strengthening that I was, uh, I, I thought that it helped a lot. Um, the right knee, something happened to it along the way. I, I really thought I rehabbed it fairly well, but there were, uh, it was just a different process. Like for the right knee, for example, I tore it during UConn's 2014 NCAA tournament run mm. right, right before the, the, they were in the American conference, right before the conference tournament. <clears throat> so I tore it and then I was on the road covering UConn for like a month and a half. And I really wasn't, I'm, I was kind of, I could barely walk. I was like limping around and like dragging my leg. And then I went, I had surgery um, after the national championship. So I don't know if, what I did to it in, in that time, if I went into surgery in a, in a, in a worse spot, because I don't, maybe the, cause I was walking around on it so much, maybe the swelling had not gone down. Um, I don't know. And then, yeah, I rehabbed, I thought fairly well, but, uh, I didn't developed a, I just had a, a loss of extension and flexion and I went to have an exploratory procedure on it. And, um, they just said, I, had a I had a torn meniscus also and I had a lot of cartilage floating around was the terminology that was thrown out <laughs> and um, they just said I had post-traumatic arthritis and I probably would never have the range of motion um, that I once had so it's fine now like I can run I can I can you know do things athletically but uh, it's it's not perfect and um and I think that I'm sure my own personal experience has contributed to my interest in PT, just trying to figure out exactly what went wrong with this and how can I prevent other people from having the same kind of issue. Yeah. And I mean, not to, don't beat yourself up. It's probably, it's probably nothing you did. Uh, the, the knees both belong to you, but they're definitely different in, you know, the tear patterns, the various other associated injuries that can occur. And there's just a million variables. Um, I, th I think you said the same surgeon did both knees, yep. but, uh, you know, we, we, we don't always reproduce the exact same results we, we get on, on one side versus the other. And there's just a million variables out there that contribute contribute to that, uh, for, for the audience. So what post-traumatic arthritis means is basically cartilage damage that is created from a history of trauma rather than wear and tear arthritis that grandma or grandpa might get just naturally from living a long life at the age of 65 to 80. Uh, this is triggered because the knee has been traumatized. And as a result, it has created cartilage damage at an early age. And unfortunately, cartilage damage is something that progresses without any known ability to halt or reverse that progression. And you know, ACL surgery is not done to stop the progression of arthritis. It may slow it uh, to some degree, we, we hope, by re restoring the stability to the knee, but it certainly won't reverse any cartilage damage that's uh, already in the knee because of the injury itself. And studies have really shown it won't prevent uh, arthritis from developing in the future. So, you know, I tell a lot of patients that unfortunately, just the fact that you had the ACL surgery, no matter how well the outcome after the reconstruction goes to, to repair or reconstruct the ACL, still a chance you might get arthritis. And unfortunately, it's happened to you at a, at a young age. Um, but but uh, thankfully, you're, you're able to, I, I think, do most of the activities you want. I think you were telling me that yep. the basketball, you, you kind of hung up your sneakers. Yeah. And that's, I don't know if I physically could play because I can, I can run and I, like, but I have some limitate, like my, my left leg is a lot stronger than my right leg. Mm -hmm. So I have some imbalance that I would just be hesitant to play. Cause I don't, I don't really, I haven't really done many of those motions in a long time. 
Um, but also, I I'm just not good anymore, so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be entertaining. It wouldn't be fun for me to play. Yeah. Yeah. It would be the last couple of times I was playing. It was just very frustrating because yeah. I could never really shoot very well. So I really relied on quickness and athleticism. Yeah. And if you don't have that, oh, trust me. Now I now I'm sure I really can't shoot. So I don't know what I could do, and I don't know about you. I just I don't like being the worst player on the court. Oh so yeah. I, I'm okay with not playing. Yeah, there, there's a reason why I grabbed toward, toward basketball. That was it's because oh. of the sport I was best at. That's <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely true. Um, well, so you you have this unique position where you've been on uh, the side of the media of journalism covering not necessarily sports medicine per se, uh, but you know certainly a field that has a lot to do with sports medicine with professional and high level college sports. And now you're going to be a sports medicine professional yourself uh, as you join the ranks of the physical therapy world. And, and you know, you, you don't need to be told sports medicine has really evolved a lot over the last 20, 30 years. One of our first guests was uh, former Saints linebacker Jim Merlow, who played in the 70s, who blew out his knee and the next day was rushed into a surgery that by today's standards would be considered barbaric. And, and we've come a long way since then. And and as we've grown, so has the, the media attention, uh, it seems. And, and fantasy sports, I think, has a lot to do with that. Um, is that something you observed in your time as a journalist, that you know, the amount of tension and, and scrutiny injuries, especially to our star athletes in particular, has, has really exploded? Oh, definitely. Yep. I think it's kind of like an emerging uh, sector of, of uh, sports media coverage. And, I, and it's part of, like, as someone who's going into PT, um, and obviously I'm a very big sports fan, a good way for me to learn about a lot of things is listening to podcasts. So I was really just searching for some sports medicine podcasts. And I came across yours um, on that drive. And I thought you guys of everyone who's breaking into this niche, you guys are doing it, I think better than anybody with the way you go in depth on these certain injuries. And I can, like, if I want to refresh myself on the meniscus, I can just go back to the Porzingis episode and, and listen to all the, the detail you provide um, in, in that half hour episode. So yeah, I think it's, you see it everywhere. Like, I mean, ESPN has Stefania Bell uh, breaking down injuries. Even in Boston, there's a, 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 um, a sports medicine um, specialist who offers her commentary on, on different injuries with like Patriots players and things of that nature. Um, so there's, I think it, there's a lot of attention being paid and it, we're in sports media. I think we're, it's evolving so much. Sports fans are, they're just privy to more information now, I think than, than they've been before. Um, the way teams are covered, it's every last detail is, is, is covered. Like, especially with a team like the Patriots, like sure. there's, there's nothing left unturned. So when players are hurt, um, fans want to know that I think they want to know not only how long is this player going to be out, but what's wrong with him? Like, what is it? Like, what does a high ankle sprain really mean? Cause sure. everyone, you know, yeah. when, people, when people talk sports, they like to be the one to be more educated when they're, you know, to, to tell your friend, Oh, this is what a high ankle sprain is. And this is why it, it takes a so long to come back from it. So I think the information that you guys are providing and, and, other people out there. Um, it's great for fans and it's something that I think we'll only see grow in the coming years. Yeah. I appreciate the kind words mom and dad. We did not pay Kevin to say that. Uh, <laughs> that's the, the truth. The, the check is in I the mail. The Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think all of this attention is really great and you know, it makes a show like this possible. There's, there's an interest in, in this now. One of the downsides I've observed from kind of where we sit is uh, just kind of rampant speculation. And, you know, I've heard, and you've probably heard this many times, especially from folks who are on podcasts or, or on TV personalities, uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but here's my two cents on this injury. And then something outrageous follows, like, for example, uh, Clay Thompson tore his Achilles because his ACL rehab on his opposite leg was not going well, which which actually happened on on a... Uh, Warriors-centric podcast that I listen to. And, you know, from the healthcare side, that, that's a pretty irresponsible thing to, to throw out there. And, and I cannot imagine there, there's anything substantiated at all behind that. But, you know, so for, from the journalist side, like how do you draw that line between like actually reporting um, based on 
some, some sort of fact or, or something you've heard from a reliable source versus just, you know, kind of speculating. Yeah, that's, that's tough. You're certainly right. Like one thing I, I, I have observed a lot of, I'm not a doctor, but, yeah. and I, I think <laughs> when I was covering the team, I always told myself like, just don't write that. Sentence. Yeah. Don't tweet, don't tweet that. Don't say that. Like, just, <laughs> just don't do that. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't really experience, I don't think personally many conflicts with reporting injuries just because we covering the Patriots, you received so little information about injuries right. to, to begin with that there wasn't, I mean, there were times where um, like a player's agent would tell me that a player had a, a, a hamstring strain or something like that. And I would, I would just leave it at that. I wouldn't, uh, I would say, you know, player X um, suffered a, a strained hamstring in practice. I wouldn't put a timetable on anything. I wouldn't try to speculate on a possible return just because I have no idea. I mean, I don't, I don't know what good that would serve anyone by me trying to get, I mean, it would be irresponsible. One It would also, there's a chance it would just make me wrong too, yeah. which I, which I wouldn't want. So right. I, I never experienced um, that, but I, in, in sports media, there's, I mean, there's a constant pressure to, to be the one to deliver information to other reporters and writers don't have. So sure. I think there is kind of that pressure to speculate a little bit and to, you know, maybe offer a, a timetable or maybe report something from a source that might not be the best source of information on this, like a secondhand source who might've heard that this player has a high ankle sprain, but maybe it's not a high ankle sprain. So there's a lot of that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, everyone is just trying to get the tweet out there and be the first one. So there are some mistakes that happen along the way. Um, but I think for the most part, me definitely and people covering the Patriots, we didn't really run in. I don't think we ran into a lot of problems with um, being irresponsible injury reporting. Yeah. And I, I think you said something that I, I believe to be true. You mentioned it when you were covering the Patriots, you know, the, the competition for attention is, is pretty fierce and, uh, the need to get clicks or views or, or whatever to drive people to whatever publication or uh, website you promote or belong to is pretty tough. I mean, we, we have websites and personalities that have gotten very popular uh, with this aggregation thing, just aggregating other people's reporting right. without actually doing any of your own reporting and uh, just sort of passing it off as your own. So. I think a lot of these strategies are, are, are just ways to try to, to draw attention. Um, and, you know, if you fudge the truth or uh, kind of mislead for headlines, you know, uh, there's, there's probably no harm to that. Um, but but it, it can lead to some, some questions and a little bit of, you know, kind of wonder. I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Yeah, there's, I mean, it's kind of like the Wild West now in in sports media, uh, especially with aggregation. I mean, that's, it's one thing that I hope will slow down because I know it drives the journalists themselves insane that sure. they have to try to do it just to keep your numbers up. And it just, it became very tiring for me. Um, I, that was one part of the job I really did not like. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, what was it like? you know, trying to cover injuries for the Patriots, you know, I imagine most teams in general are tight lipped, but I could see the Patriots, you know, leaving only the tiniest of breadcrumbs, if anything at all. And if, if you, anybody's ever read an injury report, they're, they're very vague just to begin with. I right. mean, is that basically what your guys were getting? Like sort of just the, uh, injury report, which lists very little information at all. Yeah. You would, you get the injury report every day. Um, we would watch all the training camp practices, the full practice. So, we would, I mean, when guys got hurt in training camp, we would watch what actually happened. So we had a little bit more information um, there. Not that I will say it, not that we were doctors, but we, yeah, we, sure. could, <laughs> we could, we could at least, high we, could at least That's yeah. high <laughs> right. we could at least see like what, what happened to the guy. Yeah. Um, and then during the regular season, we would really watch only the first like 10 or 15 minutes of practice and they would mostly be stretching and stuff. So it would be just us taking attendance to see who was out there, who wasn't. I mean, you can get a sense for when guys are going through warm-ups if someone's like really not moving well, but um, that was pretty much it in terms of um, like our observation. And from a reporting standpoint, 
they, I mean, credit to Belichick because they, they really do a, a great job. Everything, every communication comes from him, basically. Uh -huh. like, there are not many leaks there. Um, <laughs> players, for whatever, I don't know, they're all, I mean, they don't really have much benefit to talk about their injuries. So I, I get even on other teams, they wouldn't talk about their injuries. But um, on the Patriots, they, they certainly don't. It's like the one thing. I think there are two rules. I don't know this for sure, but just covering them. <laughs> don't say anything inflammatory about the other team, any bulletin board material. Sure. The other team. And never, ever, ever talk about what injuries you're dealing with. Right. Um, so a lot of times after the season, you'll find out that, oh, uh, Danny Amendola has to have surgery on both his ankles or something. But during the season, you really – you had no idea that he was really going through that. Um, yeah. He might've popped up on the injury report, but so did 18 other players that the, sure. the Patriots injury report. Sometimes they would list half the roster with, with God knows what. So, um, you know, there were, there were other times where I remember one time after a game, Rex Burkhead, the running back had suffered a, a ribs injury. He had a cartilage injury in his ribs and he was taking off his shoulder pads and you could tell just how like painful it was for him to even like, lift his arms up and take off his shoulder pads. So there are times like that where you can get a sense for, Ooh, this guy is pretty hurt. Like he's, he might be out for a while, but right. Um, really the information, I mean, you really, really didn't learn much um, from them and they, I mean, that's a competitive advantage they want to maintain and they do a good job of, uh, of, of not giving that information out. And that's, I mean, I, I totally get it. It's sure you know, it's, it was, I guess, kind of frustrating, but you almost learned that, yeah, you're probably not going to learn much about injuries. So, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, they treated sort of like proprietary knowledge. I, I'm getting this visual of like Belichick at, at you know, watching uh, a player's press conference from behind a curtain, and every now and then he'll just like pull the curtain back and peek out and give him like the Robert De Niro's <laughs> from Meet the Parents' eyes, like, I'm watching you, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I don't think that's far off. I, really don't. I think that they, there is this misconception that Belichick doesn't care about the media. I think that that is the furthest thing from the truth. I, I think he is inc so focused on what his players are saying, and they are, I mean, they all say the exact same thing, so you know they're getting trained very well. I think it's a big part of the training. When you, when you join the Patriots, when you're drafted or when you sign, I think media training is, is a very big part of what they do because Bill Belichick believes whether it's right or wrong, that, um, that it's important to have the same message being put out by every player in the media. I mean, he, I think he believes that more than a lot of coaches. Like when I covered UConn, I mean, Jim Calhoun was a very, very intense, uh, demanding coach who could oh, yeah. you know, very fiery, but his players said whatever they wanted. Uh -huh. and I don't think he really cared what they said. Um, and, and Calhoun did too, but I just don't think he factored that into, I don't think he thought that was a big part of the equation of winning and losing games. Yeah. Bill Belichick does think it is. So it's, that was, that's an interesting aspect of covering them. Just like how, how much the organization truly cares about, uh, what the players are putting out there in the media. He's scour oh, He's only undone by Kevin Durant scouring Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> I feel I feel bad for Ke Kevin Durant needs to get off social media. I just feel terrible for him. I mean, they can't they're addicted. His life his life would just be so much easier and and just more carefree if he just. I'm not even saying. Well, I guess he would have to delete his Twitter because he he can't he can't have it on his phone and not log on. He just he should just delete it. It's just not worth it. A lot, yeah. for a lot of the players, you know, there are a lot of the players that in the locker room that you, you know, you could tell that they were searching their own names on Twitter a lot. Yep. And, and they would sometimes, if, if a beat writer said something about them, even if it wasn't like an opinion, it was just like, Oh, so-and-so got beat in coverage. They would take issue with it. And yeah. my opinion on that was always like, ah, I, I know it's hard for me to judge cause I'm not in their shoes, but I just would not be searching my own name. Right. I just think that would drive you insane. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that came out. I forget who said that this season, but Steph Curry, bless his heart. Uh, apparently, if he's having a bad game, he'll he'll do that for for motivation. And then, um, ah, well, <laughs> just, if, it, if it works, if it works, it for works. Him, then, yeah, exactly. Then great, but I don't think it works for Kevin Durant. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, when the Patriots had some 
key players go down in, in your time there. You know, Gronkowski missed most of 2016, I think, with I think what was like his third back surgery for herniated disc, and Edelman missed 2017 with an ACL tear. So. Uh, this probably aren't very interesting stories, I'm guessing, from a journalism standpoint, because, you know, they're just like out and it's like, we'll see it when we see it kind of thing. Well, yeah, uh, some of the Gronk injuries were different because he had suffered a bone bruise in his knee at Denver one year. And um, and he, he put out a statement with his agent, put out a joint statement with the Gronkowski family and the Patriots, which was just something that no one ever does. So I, hmm. whenever that happens, I, I was, that was certainly not the Patriots idea. I think it was Gronkowski's idea. And yeah, I think a lot with Gronk, I mean, he was a, I, I, I grew fonder of him as my time went on covering him because I think he was just really like a, a, a guy with a, a good soul who just liked playing the game. And I think he got bothered when he missed time and people would complain about him being injury prone or, missing games. So I, to me, part of some of that was just like, I think he just wanted people to know like what was going on with him or like the Patriots never wants you to talk about injuries, but Gronk sure. might've been like, I want them to know why I'm not playing. Like I don't want people questioning my toughness or anything like that. Right. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And then Edelman had a few, I mean, Edelman had a Jones fracture um, that he suffered in mid November of 2015. And he came back, in time for the playoffs so it was a little under a two-month re- return which <clears throat> was you know looking i mean i was just looking at what the average return to play was for some other players who had suffered that injury and i mean he came back and it was it seemed like it was a, a couple weeks early and he was also pretty fast uh, yeah he looked great i mean he came back and i think he had 100 and you know he had 120 receiving yards in the playoff game <laughs> against the chiefs so he, mm-hmm. he looked phenomenal so edelman Edelman was always dealing with something. Um, and that guy is just, I mean, he's so, so tough. And to come back from that Jones, that Jones fracture. And actually I remember his quote when he came back and I think we had asked him if, I mean, is it, is it a little early? Like what he just said, if it breaks, it breaks. Something like that. So he just, <laughs> he really wanted to, to be on the field and, and get back to the playoffs. And, um, and we weren't exactly privy to what was going on behind the scenes, whether he was being pushed by the team or he, but with Edelman, just, I don't think that that was really, I think he's, he would just do anything to play. And sure. that's what you saw with him. And then he had the ACL where he came back in, you know, he was, he was running pretty well in practice about, I would say eight months out, but mm-hmm. he also got popped for PEDs um, during that time too. So that was, that was part of a, you know, he, his, his season back from ACL surgery uh, after he had been popped for PEDs was one of his most productive seasons. So it was, there was a lot at work there. So I would say, I mean, even though we didn't always have a ton of information injury wise, the, some of the storylines and just watching the guys come back and, um, and perform that way. And certainly Edelman, there was some other stuff going on with that uh, was, was pretty impressive. And then the last thing I would add, just seeing, I mean, as someone who had soft, who had torn, I've torn my ACL twice. I know what it felt like. And I, mm-hmm. I know what my movement was after I did it to watch the NFL players tear their ACLs and like run or walk off. I'm just like, I don't know how some of them <laughs> are able to, to do it. Um, yeah. So that was always pretty crazy to see in person too. <laughs> yeah. Hearing that element story, orthopedic surgeons everywhere are saying, see, this is who we have to deal with. <laughs> Sure, just do it over again. It's no problem. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> well, I, I believe that was his attitude. Yeah. yeah. When were you, when you were interviewing for PT school? What, what kind of reactions did you get to to this background as a sports journalist? Um, they thought it was. In, I actually only interviewed with one school. They, oh, that's um, it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the the school I ended up that I'm going to, they didn't conduct interviews, so I just wrote an essay to try to explain because I know I have a non-traditional yeah. transition here. I know that they probably don't get a lot of, you know, they, they get some second career people. So it's not like totally unheard of. I've met a few of the incoming students in my class and there are others who are transitioning from another career that is totally unrelated to PT. So um, it's not the craziest thing, but uh, the interviews, uh, they, they just basically asked me like why I, why I wanted to do that. Like why, sure. 
Um, and I just explained that I thought that I just felt that that's, it's, it's hard to explain. I just, I just think that's a better fit for me and it's just what I want to do sure. at this point in my life. So yeah. I think they understood that. And, uh, I was lucky to get in and, uh, just have to finish up these prereqs and then <laughs> get, get going in June. You were probably thinking essay. I only need to apply to one school. I'm going to crush this. <laughs> this is right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would do okay in an essay. But <laughs> they're like, they don't know what they're messing with. I didn't know what I could write an essay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I did okay on my essay, but I also didn't know if they would even take time to read that. I, you yeah. know, they get so many applications. I feel like you're, if you don't test high enough or whatever, like you're just probably excluded immediately so i i didn't know what would happen going into it i just i knew that i had to get probably all a's and all my prereqs to give myself a chance because i'd be going up against people who had been planning on doing this in, in undergrad and coming out with bio and you know different science degrees that had better prepared them for this school so it was a challenge for sure um but it's been fun uh at least anatomy has i don't know if i could say the same about like some physics stuff, yeah. not, not, not as fun, but, <laughs> yeah. but it's been totally different after not doing any of this for my whole life sure, uh, to, sure. to get to do some of these classes has been cool. Yeah. Well, somebody who's read uh, medical school applications and residency applications, I can tell you that we get 95% that are like, I wanted to be a doctor because my pediatrician was so nice to me when I was five, like instantly in the trash. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to read this anymore, <laughs> but so, so it's very refreshing to get something unique and, and, and really from the heart, which uh, uh, your story is. One of my good friends, we had him on a show to talk about ACL rehab is a, um, a very successful physical therapist in, in Beverly Hills. I worked with him for, for a while before I went to med school, Amon Abbey. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, kind of what you talked about, physical therapy, it's a much more intimate relationship that you can have versus with my patients. You know, uh, for an ACL patient, we talked a lot about ACL. I'll probably see them four times uh, throughout six to 12 months after the surgery. It's not very many times. It's like, you know, I see them for like every holiday or something. Yeah. Whereas the physical therapist, you're going to see that person, you know, one to three times every week for that entire period of time, sometimes six to 12 months. So you, you really do become a part of their lives. And I remember watching Amon and the relationships he would develop with these people and, and, and some of them become, you know, sort of members of his family for life just because that intimacy you have. Uh, physical therapy is, is a unique field that offers you that kind of opportunity. And, and it's super impactful. And I, I tell a lot of my patients, you know, like you're in the hands of the physical therapist now. Like I'll check in with you every now and then to make sure the graft is good. Yep. Um, but in terms of getting you to where you want to be, it's, you're in the physical therapist's hands. So uh, make sure that's a good relationship and, and, and put in the work. Yeah, that's part of why I was drawn to it. I, I had that experience. Um, as I said, I really liked, I liked going. Like it was fun to not only go and, you know, challenge myself and try to get better, but um, just to like, hang out and you know talk sports or whatever with my sure. with my pt and just you know it was always a, a fun environment so yeah. i just when i thought about what i could do i kind of could picture myself in that kind of environment yeah well i'm excited for you and and what you're going to find is after all the schooling and, and you're going to learn learn the craft and learn the trade uh you're going to apply a lot of the things you've learned up to this point you know th there will be times when you're, uh, you know, the physical therapist, times when you're a teacher, times when you're a friend, times when you're a disciplinarian, times when you're a priest, uh, and every, you know, you're going to serve a lot of different purposes in these patients' lives. And so, you know, I'm excited for this next chapter for you. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. Kevin, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you coming on and spending, uh, spending your time with us. Super fascinating story. Let's end the show with five questions with Kevin Duffy. Okay. Number got? one. What is the nickname of Danbury, Connecticut? Um, the, well, they're the, the Mad Hatters. It would be the Hat City. That's correct. Yes. That's right. <laughs> it was the center of the American hat industry That's in right. the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yep. I'm, I don't know that. <laughs> I love that you did your research on the yeah, Danbury, New Yorker. Yes. Yeah. Wikipedia uh, is my go-to. 
which okay. no orthopedic surgeon should ever say. Uh, <laughs> I also I also found out that Danbury was ranked the second best city to live in the United States by USA Today in 2015. So uh, second nice, best city to live, was second Danbury place. Wow, yeah, exactly. What, what was know. number one? I I don't know. Okay, well, that's <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Second is the best, right? That Danbury was ranked so high. That's cool. Okay, uh, question number two. Who was your favorite New England Patriot to interview? My favorite Patriot to interview was probably either Deron Harmon or Eric Rowe. Those are both defensive backs. Not like the most famous players, but really nice guys. Really, really cool, like laid back personalities. Um, just like you could talk to, especially Deron about, I mean, there were always times where they were, as I said, involved in some kind of controversy. And he was like him, Matthew Slater, Devin McCourty. Those are the guys who would address those kind of things. So he could, he could address those for you, but he was also just, it was a, just a good guy. Like you could just, you know, you could ask him really anything and um, just had a, a lot of, a lot of laughs and uh, joked around with his teammates a lot. So I always liked uh, Harmon and Eric Rowe was, was very funny too. Who was your least favorite Patriot to interview? Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My least favorite Patriot to interview. (sighs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to think of some more high profile players (laughs) because no one knows. Like they they had the center Brian Stork in. Uh, 2015. He had a very short career, and his that career was cut short because of concussions. Um, but he was just—he really—he detested the media. It seemed like he just—he <laughs> just hadn't even more like it, it went beyond. Um, you know, like the standard, basically the standard line with the Patriots. If if they're not trying to say anything, is I'm just working hard and trying to get better. They just, yeah. they, they just basically re- they repeat that line, but it went and, and he was a frequent user of that line, but it also went beyond that. Sometimes he was just, there were times where I thought he was just like kind of rude to us, which um, I mean, it wasn't the biggest deal ever, but like, I don't know. I, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to interviewing him. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Is there like a phobia that exists of reporters? Like, uh, media phobia (laughs) oh definitely there's a young i mean the younger players i think who are not established especially i I think they're like the they're already kind of like if you're on the fringe and you know you could end up getting cut because you make a bad play in practice or you screw up like also part of that list is if you say the wrong thing like you, you might have this fear of like getting cut or getting disciplined by belichick so there was with some players i think yes they were really, really not looking forward to being interviewed just because they did not want to say the wrong thing. Sure. <laughs> like he's watching me. Right. <laughs> They're like uh, hairs on the back of their neck would stand up because they, they just knew he was around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, question number four, what will you miss the most about sports journalism? Um, I will miss. And uh, I think I do miss sometimes the, there's a certain creative aspect to it where you are coming up with, with stories and learning about people's backgrounds and writing about that, or I don't know, just thinking about something that hasn't been written and trying to write it. And I always like doing those kind of stories. So I'll miss that. And um, there are days when I do miss it. I don't think the, I think even though I'm transitioning to PT and I'm very happy to do it, I think I'll always love the, the uh, art of writing and reporting. So um, definitely won't miss that. My last question was going to be, you know, looking back at what was your favorite story to cover, but you kind of answered that. So uh, question number five, will paper newspaper still exist in 10 years? Paper newspapers? In 10 years? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely not. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know, but maybe they will because I, I would have predicted that they would be gone by 2021. I thought that, um, I don't know if you asked me in 2015, if they would be around in six years, I would say, no, probably everything will be online, but the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the people, when my generation gets a little bit older and, and our parents aren't 
the ones receiving the print paper. I don't know how much of a market there's going to be for that. And the, the industry itself is really still trying to figure that out. And it has been trying to figure that out basically since the early 2000s. So that's, it's a pretty like fascinating discussion. And it's, I don't really have a good answer for the direction of where things should be going. There's a lot of, you know, like the athletic is trying to establish its model with subscriptions. So there's the argument for trying to generate a lot of clicks and through ad revenue. So I like that's, I do like to follow the, the trends of the industry still and, and see what happens. But uh, I don't have faith that if I had to bet, I would say physical newspapers, probably not around in 10 years. Hmm. Yeah, I think my dad is single-handedly keeping our local paper alive. <laughs> I well, think he's the I, only well, one. We, we thank him. <laughs> <laughs> he's old school. Um, Kevin, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, any parting thoughts? No, just I, I really thank you so much for having me. And um, I didn't even know this. I reached out to you to try to try to get you guys to answer a question on the pod. And you wrote back like 800 words. So just thank, <laughs> thank you for for taking the time and um and addressing my question and reaching out to have me because uh I, I love the podcast and it was awesome to come on and share my story well i'm glad you did uh, it was really fascinating um and i'm happy to have met and spoken to you and um yeah best of luck with this next chapter thanks for everybody listening tonight please follow us on instagram twitter and you can always email us we're at sports Pods. mom and dad thanks for listening have a good night